the great fundamental issue now before our people can be taken place. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. Councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. Whether we shape the future in the image of our hopes is ours is to determine by our actions and our choices. If we succeed, generations to come will say of us now living that we mastered our moment. Americanism, not globalism will be our credo. Bringing Heartland America into the heart of the swamp. This is The Right Take. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to episode number 89 here on The Right Take. I am your host, Eric Lendrum, here with my co-host, Jacob Grandstaff. And we're going to be doing something a bit different, uh, or rather something we... Started doing a while ago and then haven't picked up for a while, but a sub-series, a special set of episodes that we wanted to provide to you guys to give you a long look, a deep dive into one particular massive subject. A a huge look at the macro, if you will, rather than just a couple of topics per episode, several mini-topics and then a main topic. The whole episode is dedicated to just this one topic. This is the second installment of The Long Take. The last episode focused on immigration. That was episode number 62, The Long Take on Immigration. If you guys want to go ahead and check that out and uh, just for just a quick refresher. This one is going to be on something, however, a little more recent, not as broad in scope as something that occurred over the course of many, many decades, like the downfall of our immigration system. But this is still definitely one of the most important issues of our time. And as we hinted at a couple of episodes ago, this actually, I think Jacob and I have come to the agreement, this was the single biggest white pill of the year 2022, the best news out of that year politically, even more so than the overturning of Roe v. Wade. 
What am I referring to, of course? Well, as you guys can see from the title of this episode, we are going to be talking about Twitter. Yes, the incredible saga that started uh, almost a year ago now when the absolute madman, the chief twit himself, as he called himself, Elon Musk, first set out to buy Twitter at an astounding price of $44 billion and all that has ensued since then. We, of course, uh, everything is public knowledge already. All the other Twitter files have been posted publicly in a series of threads by independent journalists like uh, Matt Taibbi and Barry Weiss and others. Uh, but we want to recap these and summarize them for you guys and go a little deeper into what this all means and why this is so important and why if, there are plenty of people talking about it, but I don't think people are talking about it quite as enough as much as they should be in terms of emphasizing how important this really is. But by the end of this episode, we hope to convince you guys that this is, in fact, some very, very good news. We've had some good news uh, over the last few months. Again, the speakers races we talked about in the last episode. But we're going to be focusing on, of course, the the long road, the battle to, that Elon Musk ultimately successfully embarked on. So, Jacob, let's talk a little bit about uh, this is where you and I actually kind of disagreed, I think, of. Uh, after he announced the purchase, I think he announced it back in like April of 2022, if I recall correctly. Um, there was some discussion in the months leading up to that that he was not serious about it, that he was ultimately going to back down. He was going to uh, ultimately pull out of the deal or something along those lines. And there were people believe, who believed it was just for show. It was just to build up his brand. You know, he wasn't really serious about this uh, political stance, which, hmm, that sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? About another billionaire businessman who decided to take a bold political stance. But he ultimately did pull it off. Uh, Jacob, and I think we disagree here, I never believed for a second Musk was going to waver. I believed as soon as he came out with that announcement and said he was going to buy Twitter, he was committed all the way to the very end. And my main reason for believing that is, quite simply, ego. All right. This was and still is the richest man in the world. And he came out with this big announcement that he was serious. He took the steps forward to take to ultimately take that action of buying Twitter. It was not a joke. He was not trolling. He clearly meant to do it. Once he set out to do it, I knew he was going to finish it because if he were to ultimately back down or back out or be forced out, it would be a blow to his ego and people would realize, oh, he's not serious. The richest man in the world can be beaten financially. So I believe he was ultimately going to go through with it from the very beginning. If you remember, he decided to actually back down within a couple of months because of the number of bots that he claimed were on Twitter. That was his stated reason for not wanting to buy Twitter in the end because it would be a poor investment because it was just so inflated with bots. In fact, that Twitter sued him to force him to buy the company because he had already – committed to buying it for $44 billion. Of course, the shareholders were going to lose a ton of money. It was going to, it was already a shell of a, a company. I mean, it wasn't profitable before he announced he wanted to buy it. So because of that, then Twitter had to turn around and sue him to force him to buy it. I'm not sure exactly what his strategy was behind that, if he actually genuinely wanted to back out of the deal. Initially, when he announced he was going to buy Twitter, uh, it was kind of one of these things where yeah, it'd be nice, but this isn't going to happen because I figured, A, Twitter is completely controlled by the intelligence community. And as we're going to see in these files that he's released, that was 100% the case. So I was thinking the intelligence community is never going to allow Elon Musk or anybody to take that away from them. And if not the intelligence community, then they'll get, you know, they'll get 
uh, him investigated over some kind of financial fraud or tax evasion, they'll throw him in prison or something like that. And B, it would be a lot of money that he would have to take a financial hit on because th these are $44 billion that he's not going to recoup. I mean, let's face it, Twitter is never going to be that profitable of a business. It doesn't matter who runs it. It's just, it's not set up that way. It's not like Facebook where you can, where everybody is on Facebook. It's a much smaller company and it's largely used by a small group of highly politicized people. If you look at the numbers behind Twitter users, it's like 20% of the platform that engages in it weekly and the rest of them might check in once a month, once every two months. So for those two reasons, I didn't think that he would take he would actually follow through on getting Twitter. Now, now the strategy behind I, claiming uh, that there's bots. I was just gonna say, yeah, some speculated he did that. He pulled out and of course forced Twitter to sue him to potentially take him over take him to court over his his backing out of that point. At which point he literally posted a meme of this on Twitter at his Twitter handle saying, like, you know, uh Elon forcing Twitter to take him to court. Thus, meaning that all information on their bots will have to be exposed in court, and then a picture of him like grinning, like smiling, or laughing, or something like that. So that that is one theory. I I again, I would not put it past him. He's a genuinely intelligent man. I would not put him past him to make a three D chess move like that. But that didn't happen ultimately. That it never it, they never actually disclosed the, the official number of bots. They never had to show any of that in court. Well, because they never did ultimately go to court. It, it stopped just shy of actually going to court. So yeah, that I think at the end Twitter Which realized. Which kind of makes me wonder why. Like, what was the point of going through all that? What was the because it didn't really. It was just kind of. It didn't really accomplish anything for anybody, for Twitter or for Musk. I mean, he wasn't able to get out of the price tag. He still had to end up paying the initial amount that he announced it at the beginning. Yeah, I, I don't know. But at the end of the day, of course, the deal ultimately did go through one way or the other. And that is where with how we are, where we are now in a Twitter, in a world where President Trump is back on Twitter. 89 million followers. He actually gained a few more million followers than he previously had when he was first banned. So he's back and he, of course, hasn't used it yet. But that's OK, because it's not just President Trump. He's brought back so many people. Uh, he's brought back Roger Stone. Uh, General Mike Flynn, um, even Laura Loomer, the most banned woman on the Internet, supposedly, is back on Twitter now. So he did uh, bring back Kanye West before banning him again, ultimately. Um, a whole bunch of other people who've been banned. Andrew Tate was banned and he brought Andrew Tate back on. He brought back just about everybody. And that was very, very encouraging to see that he did follow through on that promise to restore conservative accounts that were unfairly banned. He brought them all back and did what he said he was going to do. So that was a good promise, I think. And certainly, if nothing else, again, the leftist tears over that were just astounding. People lost their minds over it, especially when Trump came back. Well, it even caused a massive exodus of leftists. If you uh, peruse Twitter today, you'll find that it's not anywhere near as left-leaning as it was before Musk took over. And part of that is because just as the right fled Twitter whenever the deep state pretty much took it over in 2018. Yep. The, a lot of leftists have left as well. They've uh, closed their accounts. They just haven't come back to it. And there's there's some kind of weird alternative, like alt-left platform that a lot of them have gone to that's completely overrun with pedophiles. Like they, yes. all these leftists were trying to go to this platform, but the pedophiles were already there. And they're like, hey, well, this, this place is full of pedophiles. It's like, yeah, whenever you go to an alt-left platform, what do you expect? You're not going to find, like there is no family-friendly version of the alt-left. But what's the name of that uh, that platform. i know exactly the platform you're talking about it's called mastodon and i mastodon, never yes. i had never 
heard of this before. Never before had I heard of this platform. But apparently it was very much to the left what, like, Parler and Gab and some of these others were to Twitter right after a Twitter went. Like, especially after the, uh, the, the ban of President Trump. Everyone started going to Parler. They started going everywhere else. Uh, Mastodon is the left's Parler, basically. And I, I compare it to Parler because, of course, as we all know, Parler ultimately ended up being a failure for different reasons, admittedly, for technical reasons, they were on Amazon servers. They did not think that part through, obviously, but it ultimately was a failure, unlike other platforms like Gab or Truth Social, which have done much better for themselves. So Mastodon is a failure because, yes, I remember seeing a report. I want to say it was from Breitbart, but I could be wrong. But there was a report that like a high percentage of content on Mastodon was child porn. Like I think like 25% mm-hmm. of content was child porn or something to that number. But yeah, like you said, gee, a hive of leftists who support trannies and the LGBTQ stuff. It turns out that there's a lot of child porn and pedophiles on that platform. Imagine my shock. So yeah, their their parlor, their Mastodon is not is not working out for them. Mastodon bros are down pretty bad right about now. It's not gaining mainstream traction. It's not going to be the successful alternative they hoped it would be. But in addition to restoring count, accounts and allowing people to tweet freely as long as they don't violate the law or at least having clear cut TOS that people can follow. And that was the that was the main argument with Twitter. It was that the terms of service are not well defined. You can read the terms of service and even if you don't violate the TOS, they will ban you if you say something that they even perceive to be a violation of the TOS. And at least now it's kind of under under Musk, it's kind of being being monitored and being regulated to the letter of the law. But in addition to that, Musk has gone above and beyond, and he has exposed a lot of the shenanigans that went on over the previous five years. Because if you go back to, say, 2015, Twitter was a much different place compared to today, <laughs> obviously a much different place from it was earlier this year before Musk took over. It was kind of a free-for-all. People got on there. They could say just about anything they wanted. You had the left and the right on there going at each other's throats. It was a great place. It was a wonderful place in 2015, 2016. It was the Wild West. After Trump, inter- it was the Wild West of yes. the Internet, basically. It was so good. It was the Wild West of the Internet. And shortly after Trump got elected, that's when things started to change. And as we're going to go, as we're going to see in these Twitter files that uh, Musk has released, we're going to understand why it started to change after 2016. But it really ramped up in 2018 after the Charlottesville in a riot after the 2018 midterms you started to see uh, Twitter seriously clamp down on conservatives and especially people on the far right and of course it started with the people on the fringe initially it was Alex Jones and then they started taking out people who held neo-nazi views and then they started moving further and further toward the cent- uh, toward the center of the political spectrum and eventually you had them censoring people like Charlie Kirk and, yes. at, and once the COVID, after Trump was kicked off Twitter, then they just went full-fledged leftists and they censored anybody who was to the right of Bill Clinton. They censored anyone who even mildly criticized the vaccines, anyone who mildly criticized, even anyone who would criticize vaccine mandates was censored on Twitter. And so at that point, most people, unless they were just, uh, uh, you know, unless they were, were a junkie for a political conflict, They just figured there was no point in even staying on Twitter. Most people purposely got banned or left voluntarily. Now, one thing that a lot of people are going to say about these Twitter files is there a lot of criticism toward Musk for releasing these files has been, well, instead of slow rolling it, because it's been over the course of two months now that he's slowly been releasing like one per week. They're arguing, well, instead of slow rolling it, he should just open it up to journalists and let journalists dig in there like the WikiLeaks situation. Let just let journalists go in there and dig for themselves or just release all the information to the public and let the public go in and dig for themselves exactly like WikiLeaks operated. 
another thing that people are arguing that there. Uh, this is one of the criticisms that, especially a lot of the alt right, not alt right like in the political sense, but in the alternative right, the alternative conservative social media outlets, particularly Andrew Torb of Gab, is making the critis, uh, point his criticism at Musk for releasing it this way, claiming that we already know this info. This is irrelevant because everyone already knows this. Going back to 2017, going back to 2020, if you were alive and paying attention, you already know this stuff. The problem, though, is most people aren't on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Most people who are on Twitter aren't on Twitter regularly, and even most people who are on Twitter regularly simply do not have the time to keep up with it the way political junkies do. Right. So we're going to summarize public information. Many of our listeners may have already read all of the Twitter files. If you have, fantastic. We're going to condense it all into one episode. We're not going to necessarily do a part-by-part discussion, but we are going to hit the high points. To start out with, we've got the Hunter Biden suppression. A lot of people on the right who are claiming that this would have a much harder punch on the left if Musk would simply release everything in one fell swoop and stop slow rolling it is because uh, they're thinking this way because they're used to breaking news, changing the outcomes of elections. They're used to you've got a horse race leading up to the election. Breaking news happens. Dirt comes out on a candidate and all of a sudden the swing voters swing to the other candidate. That candidate loses the election. Take the North Carolina Senate race in 2020, for instance, the Democratic candidate was neck and neck with the Republican. Info came out that he had had an affair. His poll numbers instantly dropped and he lost the election. That's right. That was that was lost Democrat Cal Cunningham when he tried to run against uh, incumbent Republican Tom Tillis, which, again, just as a shout out, that worked to ultimately uncover that uh, affair, that uh, sexual affair that sank Cunningham was done by our good friend Tom Pappert back in National File. So, yeah, that's just one prominent example that were because especially because Cunningham was in the military, I believe I forget which branch, but it turned out. The uh, the woman he slept with was married to another member of the service who was deployed, who was overseas, which is even more uh, scummy than just a regular, you know, sleeping with a married woman that really just kneecapped him and took out the whole, oh, I'm a veteran, I'm a veteran. Oh, yeah. So you slept with, you know, a, a fellow veteran's wife. That's really scummy, dude. Another example is the 2016 presidential election. Two weeks before the election, it's announced that James Comey has reopened the investigation to Hillary Clinton's emails. That's a deal breaker. A lot of people who don't know anything about politics, who are focused on economics, who are focused on making money and leisure, they heard that. They're like, okay, I'm not voting for Hillary Clinton because the FBI is now investigating her. They're actually taking this seriously. The Twitter files are different. This isn't about an, an election next week or next month or the, the year after. And a lot of Republicans, they're thinking in purely political terms and not thinking in ideological terms. This is about changing the country and changing the way our government interacts with the people. So in this particular instance, yeah, a lot of the people who would be influenced by stuff like that, they're not going to pay attention to this stuff anyway. This is for people who are engaged. So we all knew that Twitter suppressed the Hunter Biden story. The New York Post released it on October 14th. And Twitter instantly banned it. They uh, refused to even allow people to in- to direct message the story in a link to yep. other Twitter US- users. They yep. blocked people from sending this to their friends through direct message. Now, going back to 2019, the FBI had found out about this laptop that was left at this uh, laptop repair shop. They had re- they had retrieved the laptop. They had gone and taken the laptop from the laptop repair guy, John Johnny Mac, I believe his name, John Mac Isaacson. That's so they perfect had, that his uh, last name is Mac. <laughs> but yeah, they had taken the laptop from him. He had not heard anything about it. Now, he had copied the files from the laptop. Because he had not heard anything from the FBI, about eight to ten months later, he sent the information to Rudy Giuliani. Rudy Giuliani initially tried to sell the Wall Street Journal on it. The Wall Street Journal was 
slow rolling it, so he turned it over to the New York Post. The New York Post published it. Now, the night before the New York Post published it, on October 13th, um, Hunter Biden's lawyer found out about it because they probably asked him for comment. Now, the interesting thing, as and this is going to get a little bit ahead of the story, but Twitter had been in constant contact with the FBI. But there was a particular San Francisco FBI agent who was in constant contact with Yoel Roth. And, of course, everyone knows who has been paying attention to this story knows who Yoel Roth was. He was basically the, the top Twitter censor. He was in close with Elon Musk. Elon Musk actually tried to work with him after he took over the company on suppressing hate speech all that stuff. And he eventually forced Yoel Roth or Roth left voluntarily after working with Musk for about a week or so. He was, so Roth was in constant contact with this at San Francisco FBI agent named Elvis Chan. Elvis Chan <laughs> sent 10 documents to Twitter the night before the New York post published that story. And miraculously the next day, as soon as the story is published, Twitter is immediately on it. They ban the story. They completely suppress it, and the same thing happens to Facebook. Now, we have – because Elon Musk has taken over Twitter, he had the money to buy Twitter, we have the info, the background info on how the FBI colluded with Twitter. We don't have any of that info with Facebook. Facebook is a much larger country uh, – larger country is basically a country <laughs> in and of itself. It's a much larger company just like YouTube, like Google, which of course owns YouTube. Yes. So – Musk Facebook. does not have the money to buy Facebook. There's no billionaire who has the money to buy Google. So we have the info on Twitter. We don't have it on Facebook and Google. However, if the FBI was this close with Twitter and was having meetings with Twitter, with Twitter was talking to the people who were over censorship, you know they were in constant contact with the censors at, at Google and oh, Facebook who have a much larger audience. Facebook, which owns so, Instagram, by the way. like They all kind of work together. Twitter's kind of on its own island away from the other major tech platforms. And it, but it's also it's interesting, though, of course, as you pointed out, we don't yet know for sure the level of contact with the FBI and these others. But we do know at the very least that, of course, Mark Zuckerberg in an interview with Joe Rogan recently, he came right out and said, oh, yeah, the FBI came to us and warned us to be vigilant against Russian disinformation. And, you know, keep an eye out for a story that's going to be damaging to Joe Biden that will be obviously from the Russians. And that, of course, Zuckerberg says, well, to us, that the laptop story seemed like a perfect example of that. So he came right out and admitted it. So, mm -hmm. yeah, we do know for a fact the FBI was working with all these alphabet soup companies, as they're called. And, and we need to keep in mind our tax dollars as conservatives, our tax dollars pay the salaries of FBI agents, our tax, just yes. like liberals do. But when the night that Hunter Biden's lawyer finds out about this story, Somehow or another, Elvis Chan – now, we don't know the contents of the documents that he sent. All we know is he shot off 10 documents the night before the New York Post released that story to Twitter, and suddenly Twitter is completely on board, just as if – almost as if they worked directly for Hunter Biden in suppressing this damaging information on him and his father. So somehow or another, obviously, Elvis Chan was in contact with Hunter Biden's lawyer. It's a completely incestual relationship between law enforcement, the Democratic Party, their the Democratic Party's politicians, their children, and social media companies. So it, you, know, you can blame Twitter all you want, but ultimately this has to do with the way our institutions work together to suppress information from the general public in order to serve the interests of Democratic politicians. One of the things that conservatives constantly complained about during the era of, of Twitter censorship was shadow banning. And yes. now this is obviously everyone knows this is when you send out a tweet 
And normally, let's say if you have 10,000 followers and your average tweet gets 50 likes, this tweet all of a sudden only gets five likes. If you normally get 20 shares, this tweet only gets two shares. So obviously something's going on here behind the scenes that is stopping this tweet from reaching as many people as it normally would. And it's, it's true. Twitter did shadow ban. Not only did they shadow ban, they would have a do not search list. Some people, you could not search their names in the Twitter, in the search bar. Even if you Others, type, they had a, um, yeah, even if you type their exact Twitter handle, I remember looking at this mm-hmm. when I was compiling a tweet for our uh, account at the right take pod of like the list of the accounts that were recently unbanned, Mike Lindell, all the others. And I searched like at real Mike Lindell or whatever his handle is. And it would not, his account would not be the first thing that would show up. You would have to find a tweet that has that, that tagged him in it and then click on that tagged handle and then it would take you to his account but you literally could not find the result that is a search ban others had a do not amplify we're on a do not amplify list charlie kirk was is one example and these were a lot of them were mainstream uh tweeters they had hundreds of thousands of followers but because they said something that went against the official political position of twitter of twitter's censors then they were on a do not amplify list Now, the problem with this is not necessarily that Twitter has these different categories. The problem is that people were sent into timeout, so to speak, without even knowing about it. They had now they knew about it because their tweets weren't getting the normal traffic that they expected, but they would contact Twitter. Twitter would give them the runaround and they wouldn't come out and say, yes, you are on a do not amplify list because of this particular tweet. They would they would simply be lied to. And in fact, Twitter notoriously lied about this policy. Jack Dorsey went through before Congress and multiple times claimed that they do not shadow ban. Um, who's the lady of Vijaya Gad? Gaddy, however you pronounce her last name. Oh, I thought, she went yeah. on she went on Joe Rogan and simply lied about it, claimed that they do not do this. And this is this happened over and over again. But but as we know now, because of the release of the Twitter files, there were certain levels of shadow banning and they did not allow people to appeal because it wasn't open. It was completely in the background. Now, the average person, just to play devil's advocate, the average liberal would say, "Okay, well, this is a private company. If they don't want someone's tweets to be amplified, they they don't have to. And even Elon, uh, I mean, as a criticism of Elon Musk, he has not eliminated shadow banning. He's just made it more transparent. So if you're a social media company, you have the right to do this. What you do not have the right to do, and this is basic contract law, you do not have the right to do this behind closed doors in secret without giving the user the opportunity to at least know what's happening and the opportunity to appeal. This is a clear violation of their terms of service because shadow banning was not part of their terms of service. All right, so another way that they that they would get around breaking their own terms of service was whenever they're trying to figure out how to ban Donald Trump. Because after January 6th, we see that the employees, of course, obviously the employees, and this is just another uh, a little tidbit. When you consider that a company has a shadow banning policy, a secret shadow banning policy, you figure, all right, well, if someone is marginally advocating for violence, like suggesting, like uh, very ironically suggesting that people should go out and kill their political opponents. Okay, you don't, you don't want to, you can't outright ban that person, but you want to kind of you know, suppress their reach. Consider this. In 2018, 96% of Twitter's employees' donations went to the Democratic Party. In 2020, that number reached 98%. By 2022, 99.7%. Now, 
you tell me, if you got a company that has a shadow banning policy, do you really think that they're going to administer this even-handedly? It's kind of like in academia. When you have history professors, 90% of them are Democrats or donate to the Democratic Party. Do you really think that those professors, once they get tenure and if they have any influence over the hiring decisions of that university, that a conservative professor is going to have the same chance as a liberal professor? Just because they're so, many, uh, they're so biased in one direction, that's not um, – something that's believable. It's not obviously Twitter is not going to judge this even handedly. Okay. Twitter employees had been wanting to get rid of Trump for a long time. January 6th put them all in a counter-revolutionary mode as if they were at war. They actually behaved as if the United States was under attack by foreign adversaries because of course to them, all of these bumpkins who are rushing the Capitol, they are foreign adversaries. They don't recognize these people as part of their elite. They don't recognize them as part of their fellow citizens. They're basically people who are trying to overturn the system that they have dedicated their lives toward. So whenever they were discussing ways to ban Trump, they were thinking, okay, well, Trump only has one strike against him. We can't actually ban him under our TOS. So they discussed whether his tweets could be considered incitement to violence, and they decided that they could not. Uh, one staffer uh, wrote, quote, I think we'd have a hard time saying this is incitement. It's pretty clear he's saying American patriots are the ones who voted for him and not the terrorists. But Twitter executives did ban Trump, even though he had only one strike, and nothing that he said indicated that he was encouraging his supporters to commit acts of violence. Shortly before Trump was kicked off of Twitter, the executives hosted a 30-minute all-staff meeting. Jack Dorsey and Vijaya Gad had to answer staff questions as to why Trump wasn't banned yet. Whenever they were trying to explain that he hadn't violated their rules, this just made their employees angry. And this is an example of a leftist mob. You have yes. employees at Twitter, 99% of whom voted for Democrats, donated to Democrats, or those who actually donated. They are demanding that Trump be banned from Twitter. Why? Because he's Trump. That's mm -hmm. reason enough for them. The, the so, thing too that needs to be noted there is you said it's a mob, but this is an even more blatant example because this isn't an election where they can you know turn out and vote or you know in their case steal and harvest ballots and whatnot and commit voter fraud. This is a company, all right. It's like the military at that point. You are an employee. It doesn't matter if your thousands of employees are calling for Trump to be banned. Jack Dorsey's the CEO. He's the boss. He can tell them all to go pound sand. And if you keep complaining about this and basically questioning my judgment, I can fire all of you on the spot and have right cause to do so at that point. But of course, because they are leftists, they feel beholden to the mob, they cave easily to pressure. You can guess where this is going. Of course, we all know where it ended up going. They caved to the mob anyway, despite the fact that their chain of command meant Dorsey had single, he single-handedly had control over the situation. He could have, at any point in time, put his foot down, brought the hammer down, and said, no, we're not banning him, and that's final. But of course, that's not what he did. So if you follow Jack Dorsey at all since he left Twitter, or since he was uh, – some people suggest he might have been forced out at Twitter. But yeah. he actually has supported Elon Musk taking over Twitter, and he's been – I mean he, he hasn't been really really vocal. He hasn't been extremely vocal about it, but he does support the policies that Musk has implemented and the releasing of the Twitter files. I am of the opinion personally that Dorsey was kept in the dark on a lot of what he did because – if you look at the political environment of after Trump got elected, you had this almost like a like a so-called people of color revolution behind the scenes in Silicon Valley and in the institutions where you had non-white people, especially immigrants, who were trying to exert themselves and had been brainwashed to believe that white men were the problem, but like they were the the host, they were the cause of all the ills in the world. 
So it's almost like Jack Dorsey was the white male face of the company, but Vijaya Gad and all the other POCs behind the scenes, they kind of kept him in the dark and just ran it however they wanted. Because, I mean, if you look at his testimony to Congress, he's, in, he's guilty of perjury through and through. Uh, by the things that he said to Congress that Twitter was obviously doing. So I'm kind of of the opinion that he actually didn't know a lot of what was going on behind the scenes. But multiple Twitter employees, uh, this was what, something that Yoel Roth told a colleague, that multiple Twitter employees, as they were discussing whether how they were going to, not necessarily whether they should, but how they were going to get rid of Trump and still stick to their TOS, a lot of the Twitter employees quoted the banality of evil, suggesting that people implementing the Twitter's policies were like Nazis following orders. In other words, these Twitter employees were actually comparing their fellow Twitter employees who were not banning Trump at, with – they were comparing them with Nazi employees who were following orders. Which, of course, In other means words, they were – They're comparing Trump comparing to Hitler. Comparing Twitter employees – no, 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 no. They were comparing well, – yeah, yeah, they were comparing Trump to Hitler, but they were comparing their own fellow Twitter employees to Nazis. In other <laughs> words, pe- not just Nazis, but they were comparing their fellow Twitter employees, their fellow – their coworkers to people who were gassing children. Like this is how far these people, this is how deranged these people are. So Dorsey requested simpler language to explain Trump's suspension because he didn't want to. Dorsey was like, well, we can't really compare Trump to Hitler and compare ourselves to Nazis. Roth wrote, quote, God help us. This makes me think he wants to share it publicly. In other words, like this makes me think that Jack Dorsey actually wants us to explain to the public why we have to get rid of this Nazi. An hour later, Twitter announced Trump's permanent suspension due to the risk of further incitement of violence. Of course, Twitter employees were absolutely ecstatic. They congratulated each other, quote, big props to whoever in trust and safety is sitting there whack a moling these Trump accounts, someone said. But now here's the thing. Here's the thing with leftists. You give them a victory, give them an inch, you give them a fingernail, and they want to take your whole cotton picking arm. <laughs> By the next day, employees expressed eagerness to tackle medical misinformation as soon as possible. So there's like, okay, we've gotten rid of Trump now. On to the next hill. Like we've conquered one hill, on to the next hill. Now we need to tackle medical and misinformation. Now we've got all these people, because keep in mind, this is still at the height of COVID. They're like, now we've got all these Trump activists who are still on Twitter that are spewing medical misinformation. So we've got to go get rid of them. And it's, of course, outside of the United States, this was uh, this was extremely controversial, even to Europeans who are very authoritarian compared to Americans. Like Americans yes. are extremely libertarian compared to Europeans. Angela Merkel uh, criticized this. Uh, everybody, pretty much the, the Mexican president criticized Twitter's decision to ban Trump, even people who didn't like Trump, because they understood that the fact that a private company has this kind of power is a problem because this is power that only governments should have. The fact exactly. the idea – yeah, I mean, the idea that a, a private company would ban somebody like this is just unheard of. And in fact, there was one Chinese employee who criticized – there was only one dis- dissent in, critis- in criticizing the banning of Trump. And it was someone who was a Chinese national, and he explained this kind of censorship is what's wrong with China. Like in China, they will censor you for saying anything that's that's critical of what the regime wants. And it's like- some of the others were saying – that this isn't this is different. They were arguing that this is different because in China it's the government censoring the citizens. This is the citizens censoring the government. And here's where the Twitter employees got it wrong. When Twitter censored Trump, this was not a private company and private citizens standing up speaking truth to power. Twitter was being used as a wing of the FBI, of the DHS, of the CIA, as we're going to see later on in these files. This was literally a the government 
censoring and banning an imposter. Trump was an imposter into the deep state. The deep state was simply using their contractor, Twitter, to silence his voice. So this was, this is why this Twitter, a lot of these Twitter employees were trying to justify it as, oh, well, we are the private citizens censoring the government. So it's not really First Amendment related because it's not like this is the government stopping private citizens. But this is this is why That's exactly, Trump came yeah. in as an outsider. He was not right. actually part of the government. And that's exactly the point that Tucker Carlson made in his monologue, I think, like right after Trump was banned. Because remember, Twitter, I think, did it first. And then all the others, Instagram, Facebook, mm-hmm. YouTube, they all did it within the next literally 24 hours. You know, there was probably co- there had to be coordination between all the big tech companies on that one. But he said in his monologue, he basically said with this, you know, not just any world leader. This is the leader of the free world. This is the most powerful man in the world, the president of the United States. And Tucker said with that moment, with that one push of a button to ban Trump. Twitter showed the whole world that they are more powerful than the president of the United States, and they wanted to make sure everybody knew that. And the message was definitely received, as the response of the world leaders indicated. Okay, so how did the FBI – what's the what's the relationship between the FBI and Twitter? Because anyone who was paying attention in 2020 and saw how – especially in 2021, after they got rid of Trump and after they – whenever you had social media companies all marching in lockstep with the COVID message. Because if you remember, like the news media would say – the CDC would say something on COVID. The news media would repeat it, and then every social media outlet would put up these fact checks. If you said – it wouldn't even have to be COVID-related. You could say something, and if there was a word that would trigger their bots – then there would be a fact check that would pop up on the screen and redirect you to a mainstream article to correct whatever misconceptions that they think that you might have regarding the COVID vaccines or COVID-19. And the average person, if they were paying attention to this, which let's be honest, the average person is not paying attention to any of this stuff. They see it, they find it funny, they find it ridiculous, they find it annoying, and then they immediately forget it after they go back to their life. That's just the way people operate. But people who actually are into politics who actually pay attention to history and the history of authoritarian regimes and understand and can recognize patterns. That's the thing, pattern recognition. People who actually have pattern recognition and see where this is going, they could tell that all the social media companies were on the same page. They were all receiving their orders from the same actors, all the media, the mainstream media. They were all receiving their orders, their marching orders from the same actors. So who were these actors? What actors are actually powerful enough to dictate to news media, to news outlets, and to social media outlets what to say, how to react to a vaccine, to a pandemic, to politicians? Obviously, it's the deep state. Now, Matt Taibbi, who is one of the journalists that uh, that Elon Musk has turned the Twitter files over to to report on, he defines the deep state as the government agencies and their contractors. It's the government agencies, plus it's the think tanks that they contract to. It's the military industrial complex who make the weapons. It's also university research institutes. That is the deep state. So how did the deep state, the all these alphabet agencies, have such an incestuous relationship with Twitter? It all started in 2016. If you remember back in 2016, Trump, it looked like he might actually have a chance of defeating Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton was a very flawed candidate, even though she was the one that the deep state wanted to elect because of her email issues. She wasn't likable. It was possible that she might lose. So what did they do? They conjured up the Russia collusion hoax. Yes. And they sent the they came up with the FISA warrants on they manufactured these FISA warrants on Trump campaign staffers to try to produce some kind of link between Russia and the Trump campaign. Now, what was what were the accusations of the whole Russia collusion hoax? It was this idea 
that Trump people in the Trump administration in his campaign and later in his administration were colluding with the Russian government to help Trump get elected. And eventually the the only evidence they had were a few bots on Twitter and Facebook that had <laughs> produced pro Trump content. And these bots weren't even and they they would argue, oh, well, these had hundreds of thousands of hits. But a hit online on social media just means that someone's scrolling and that they're scrolling past this thing. It doesn't actually mean that they read it. And even if they did read it, think about this for a second. It's supposed to be such a horrible thing if a foreign actor posts something in favor of a domestic politician on Facebook. I mean, think about if I if I post something on Facebook in favor of an Argentinian presidential candidate, it, uh, say I posted in Spanish, who cares? Like, what influence do I actually have on Argentinian voters? I'm, I'm a foreigner. You know, even if I create a page in favor of an Argentinian candidate, it's a, it's a social media page. So the FBI, this is how ridiculous this is. This is a web page of the FBI combating foreign influence. They have, a, they have a, the Foreign Influence Task Force that eventually swelled to 80 agents. So you got 80 agents who are simply their, their whole, their, all they do is focus on foreign influence in elections. Now, this isn't illegal. There's no law on the books that says that a foreigner can't post something to social media in favor of an American candidate. This is not the same as running an ad on TV. I could see if they said, okay, you can't allow Facebook, Twitter, you can't allow a foreigner to run an ad for an American a politician. That's understandable. But them giving their opinion on Twitter is what the FBI eventually moved to consider as foreign influence in election. And the way they would do this is the FBI would send an email to Twitter and they would say, hey, this is this might be misinformation. This might be a foreign actor. You need to act on it. If Twitter didn't act on it, they would then go to the media. And the media, then there would be a release in the in the media saying that Twitter is being influenced by foreign actors. Russians are influencing elections through Twitter, and that would put pressure on Twitter from all the leftist activists to actually do something about it. There are over 150 emails between Roth and the FBI. The San Francisco agent Elvis Chan, he even reminded Roth in one email of their quarterly call. Think about that, a quarterly call between Twitter and the FBI. Not suspicious the at all. There's, there's, there's no collusion here whatsoever, folks. Oh, yeah, absolutely no absolutely no collusion between our the taxpayer-funded FBI agents and a social media company. The DHS worked with think tanks to pressure Twitter to censor the, like the alphabet agencies wanted. And again, this is the same it's the same tax, tactic. So DHS would come to Twitter. They would give them a list. They would send them a list. Okay, this account, this account, this account. We want you to ban these accounts or we want you to censor these tweets. If Twitter didn't comply, and many times they wouldn't, they would send them a message and saying, sorry, these tweets actually don't violate our terms of service. DHS or F the FBI would then go to the media. The media would criticize Twitter. That would create blowback, and eventually it would just become too much of a headache. So just in one, as an example, Twitter personnel in one case looked at reasons to suspend four accounts that the FBI San Francisco office notified them about. And each account was simply writing jokes about the election. Well, they eventually censored these accounts because of civic misinformation. In an internal email from November 5th, the FBI's National Election Command Post, which sends complaints, sent the San Francisco field office a long list of accounts that, quote, may warrant additional action. Agent Chan passed the list onto his Twitter folks. Twitter then replied with its list of actions taken. 
In a letter to former Deputy General Counsel Jim Baker on September 26, 2022, legal executive Stacia Cardiel outlined results from her, quote, soon-to-be weekly meetings with DHS, DOJ, FBI, and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. The Twitter executive wrote that she explicitly asked if there were impediments to the sharing of information with industry. What did the FBI say? The FBI, quote, the FBI was adamant no impediments to sharing exist. So the FBI was not... It had no qualms about sharing classified information with Twitter in order to get Twitter to censor people that they wanted censored. So one of these accounts said, now, if you're a Democrat, be sure to vote on November 4th or something of that nature. Like it was a, obviously a joke. The election was on November 3rd, and the FBI actually wanted Twitter to censor this because they were claiming this is election misinformation. And Obviously, this is something that they're – if you've got 80 agents that are this obsessed with somebody making jokes on Twitter about when the election day is well, – first of all, if, if somebody is so dumb that they're getting their election information from some rander, random tweeter about when election day is, they, they shouldn't be voting anyway. Secondly, when we've got an FBI that is so over – so bloated that they've got 80 agents to spend on this stuff, we obviously have a problem with federal spending. I mean, shouldn't the FBI be chasing child, you know, child traffickers or something like that? Go chasing after bank robbers instead of spending this much time, money, and energy on policing jokes on Twitter. But this is what they did because, again, this goes back to 2016. In 2016, Donald Trump was not supposed to win election. He won the election, so all of these Democrats in the deep state they had to figure out a way to make sure that this never happened again. To make sure that no one who is not supposed to win an election ever gets elected again. And the simple salute, the the simple explanation for this was that well, Americans wouldn't actually elect somebody like Donald Trump unless they were misinformed. The only way they could be misinformed is if our foreign enemies or our foreign adversaries would misinform them in order to elect someone who is going to carry out a foreign policy in the foreign country's interest. In this case, it's Russia. So they just figure, okay, so you have all these Russian bot, bots. You had the There's some kind of internet uh, internet service in Russia. Um, the, uh, I don't remember the, the actual name of the agency, but this was allegedly the bot farm that Robert Mueller claimed that Russia was using to influence American elections. So the, the according to the theory is this bot farm produced thousands and thousands of accounts that influenced and swayed the American public in 2016 to go to the polls and elect Donald Trump. So you got taxpayers, Republicans, who are being forced to fund what is essentially a political opposition campaign against Trump by our FBI. And they're, of course, using Twitter in order to, uh, to do it. They're using Twitter, they're using Facebook, they're using Google. So... This And so we get to 2020. So this is what they're doing in 2019, 2018, 2019. We get to 2020. Biden is doing pretty good in the polls. It's, he's not a Hillary Clinton. Like he's not really popular, but he doesn't have the toxicity about him that a Hillary Clinton does. He doesn't just repulse voters the way she did. And suddenly they've got this – they understand that his son is a liability. They've got this laptop. So – one of the problems, and again, this goes back to the point I made earlier about a lot of conservatives are criticizing how Elon Musk is doing this. They would just like him to release everything at one time so you can have a negative story in the press, and it makes Democrats look bad, and it helps Republicans at the polls. This is this only works in election time, and this is what the FBI is worried about. This is what the DHS is worried about. If breaking news happens – in fact, so I talked to, actually talked to someone who worked for a – I'm not going to say who it was, but they worked for a high-profile Republican – 
the Republican was not doing well in the polls, and they said that they were hoping for quote unquote breaking news because they understood that the only thing that would help their candidate is if news broke, negative news broke about the other candidate, like an affair, some kind of corruption scandal. So the FBI understood that the only thing that would save Trump in October, because let's let's be honest, Trump was not doing as well against Biden in September and October of 2020 as he was against Hillary Clinton in September and October of 2016. He also, if you remember, he had COVID during the first debate. So he his first debate performance was horrible. He was angry. He was he was aggressive. He turned a lot of people. Everyone I talked to, uh, Trump supporter, not Trump supporter, who watched that first debate was incredibly turned off by Donald Trump in his performance against Biden because and it's because he had COVID. When you have COVID and you don't know that you've got it, it makes you it makes you an extremely irritable person. So the FBI understood that the only way that Trump was going to win this election as if negative breaking news happened that made Joe Biden look bad, that would swing independence in Trump's favor. They had this laptop in their possession from Hunter Biden. They understood uh, this at any point could break and the public could find out about it. So what did they do? They During 2020, starting in the spring, the FBI and other law enforcement agencies repeatedly primed Yoel Roth to dismiss reports of Hunter Biden's laptop as a Russian hack and leak operation. This is before Hunter Biden's lawyer gets word that the New York Post is about to publish this story. Because they, I mean, if you remember, the FBI took the laptop. They didn't know if this guy, John Mack, had taken, had sent any of the information to anybody. They didn't know who else had this information. So they're going to Roth. They're going to Facebook, as we know from Zuckerberg's interview. And they're priming these social media companies. Hey, you know, in 2016, as you know, we had a lot of, we had a lot of problems with Russian disinformation. We had a lot, a lot of problems with foreign intervention in our elections. And of course, we don't want foreigners to influence our elections. We only want Americans to have a say in our elections and who becomes president, who gets elected. So you have a responsibility as a social media platform to make sure that foreign disinformation doesn't make it to the public. You have a, a serious responsibility to the American people to make sure that we don't that we aren't faced with Russian disinformation, any of this stuff. So they're repeating this stuff in these weekly, monthly meetings that they're having with Twitter censors all throughout 2020, convincing and they're literally convincing people like Yoel Roth that this is a serious danger. So much so that they're even pressuring them to almost find. Russian disinformation. This is one of the things that they that Twitter was actually expressed frustration in. If you read these Twitter files, that it was almost like the government agencies wanted them to make up disinformation on Russia, on China, on Iran, our so-called enemies, our adversaries overseas, so they would have something to produce to the American people. This was something, especially with Democratic senators. Democratic senators would repeatedly claim that social media platforms weren't doing enough to fight foreign disinformation. Frustrated Twitter employees would email them, especially Richard Blumenthal. He was one of the main he was one of the main um, offenders in this regard. They would email them and say, "We actually aren't facing any foreign disinformation. Like we we found a few accounts that are inactive. They were active in 2016. They're no longer active." Blumenthal and others, they would completely ignore, and they'd still go to the media and say that Twitter is doing nothing to combat misinformation. So when Hunter Biden's lawyer finds out about this, um, Elvis Chan then sends those 10 documents over to Twitter. You have these Twitter employees who have been primed, like Roth, to believe that Russia is going to release a hack and a uh, hack and leak operation similar to WikiLeaks and that they need to do something to stop it for the betterment of the American public so the American public isn't misled. Now, 
one of the arguments that people will will make um, when it comes to the the government using private corporations to advance their goals is they'll say, okay, so what if you have a situation where an actual foreign adversary is doing something that is contrary to American interest? Shouldn't is it is it okay for say the D say um, uh, let's say the DoD to move in and say and tell Twitter, okay, look. We need this particular dictator gone because he is detrimental to American interest. So we want you to amplify voices who are in opposition to this dictator. And we would like, you know, we would like to create bots and help you amplify voices that would try to help him be overthrown or help him lose the election. This is a discussion that the average American doesn't really think much about, but it's something that that the DOD was actually doing with Twitter. They were. Uh, they went to Twitter, and this was back. This is something that Lee Fang actually released in uh, Part Eight of the Twitter Files, and they asked Twitter to be allowed to create multiple bots. And several of the bots were given verification. Other bots were given amplification. So whenever you typed in a particular word, that particular bot would rise to the top. These bots were. They pretended to be Middle Eastern experts, and they pretended. One of them pretended to be an Iraqi citizen, and. These were obviously – they were just creations of the Department of Defense, and what these bots would do is they would amplify pro-U.S. talking points. They would um, promote the U.S. involvement in the Middle East. They would promote American policy in the Middle East, and they would uh, – one of them – he actually – one of these bots um, spread, uh, spread disinformation that Iran was trying to pollute the water in Iraq, and this is obviously – and to get the Iraqi – of course, he was writing in Arabic – trying to get the Iraqi citizens to turn against Iranian involvement in their country. Now, the average person, again, the average American would say, okay, well, is this okay? This is kind of a gray area. So you have the U.S. government that's creating bots on Twitter and trying to influence foreign policy through an American private company. If it advances America's interest, then yeah, I guess it's okay. Personally, I would argue that unless we're actually at war, this is simply under the belt. Like this is something that the American government should not be doing unless we're actually in a congressionally declared war with a foreign country because the American public didn't authorize any of this. The American public didn't give the American government permission to use American corporations to attack foreign leaders, to attack foreign countries, to try to influence foreign elections because, again, this is what we're accusing Russia of doing. We're accusing Russia of using our social media companies and their social media platforms and their, you know, their websites to influence American elections. The DOD is funding the exact same thing. Okay. So even if you say it's okay for the government to influence foreign elections and try to promote American interests through an American private corporation, where does the stop? Because if the government can run a PSYOP campaign to try to influence foreign countries without Americans' knowledge, what's to stop the federal government from doing the same thing against our own people? If the government can do this against the Iraqi people, the government can also influence what Americans see. And this is exactly what ends up happening with as we start to move toward 2020. As the saying goes, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. As the government's gaining more and more power over these social media platforms, they're starting to take more and more liberties. It gets to the point to where Adam Schiff even sends an email to Twitter demanding that a journalist be censored for writing an actual legitimate article criticizing him. Now, thankfully, Twitter had not gone so far into the pockets of the federal government that, to where they were going to bend the knee to something like that. Someone, someone actually sent him an email back and said, we don't do that. In other words, you know, yeah, we're not going to censor this journalist for simply writing a mean article about you. But this is, the, this is the point 
where you get where the government has this much authority over a private company, eventually anyone who's just critical of Democrats gets censored. Okay, so Matt Taibbi released, this is from part nine, after weeks of Twitter files reporting detailed close coordination between the FBI and Twitter and moderating social media content, the Bureau, that is the FBI, issued a statement Wednesday. It didn't refute the allegations. Instead, it decried, quote unquote, conspiracy theorists publishing, quote unquote, misinformation whose sole aim is to discredit the agency. So the FBI, and this is one of the things, and of course, he only gives part of it. The FBI also said, we... I'm not going to read their entire statement, but they said we always cooperate with private companies to, you know, fulfill our duties to the American people. And what they're basically saying is, yeah, this is nothing new. Like the stuff that Twitter files is uncovering is just basically par for the course. But to the average, and this is what, like, to the average person, they're thinking, okay, government agency, like law enforcement agency, working with a private company to bring criminals to justice. But this isn't what they're doing. They're using, they're working with a private company to censor legitimate political voices. The files show that the FBI was acting as a doorman to a vast program of social media surveillance and censorship encompassing agencies across the federal government from the State Department to the Pentagon to the CIA. The operation was far bigger than the reported 80 members of the FITF, the Foreign Influence Task Force that I mentioned, which also facilitated requests from a wide array of smaller actors from local cops to media to state governments. And this is this is what we're seeing. So first of all, it starts out with the FBI. Then eventually other agencies are getting involved in it. And then you've got state governments are saying, you know what, if the FBI can send a request to Twitter to censor somebody, uh, you know, I'm a state legislator and um, this journalist is causing me a headache. He's spreading misinformation. So I'm also going to get the email of a censor at Twitter and shoot them an email. And eventually every single government agency is sending emails to Twitter demanding that they censor people. It got so it got so intense that they had thousands and thousands of emails flooding their inbox every single day from government agencies demanding that they censor people. So much so that eventually the FBI ended up spending 3.4 million dollars. Gave they gave Twitter 3.4 million dollars to fund all this because these Twitter employees they don't have time to deal with all this. They've got to hire new employees or they got to make their workers work overtime and pay them overtime. And where's that money going to come from? So in order to help Twitter facilitate the censorship, the FBI paid them $3.4 million, basically using them as a government contractor. On June 29, 2020, San Francisco FBI agent Chan wrote to a pair of Twitter execs asking if he could invite an OGA to an upcoming conference. OGA or, or other government agency can be a euphemism for CIA, according to multiple former intelligence officials and contractors. One Twitter employee chuckled, quote unquote, they think it's mysterious, but it's just conspicuous. Other government agency, says retired CIA officer Ray McGovern, the place where I worked for 27 years. And this is another aspect of the Twitter files that we find out. There were dozens, if not hundreds of former spooks who worked at Twitter. There was a constant revolving door. This especially happened after 2016 where people who worked in the intelligence agencies would go to work for social media companies. Because keep in mind, these uh, these deep state agents, they literally believe that Donald Trump won election, his election in 2016 because of foreign influence. They didn't believe that he won because he won over the American people. They felt that the only reason why somebody who as far out in left field as Trump would win is because of Russian influence. So the only way to stop that influence is if they themselves went and worked for these organizations, these social media companies. It was an open secret at Twitter that one of its executives was ex-CIA, which is why Chan referred to that executive's quote-unquote former employer. 
the government was in constant contact, not just with Twitter, but with virtually every major tech firm. These included Facebook, Microsoft, Verizon, Reddit, even Pinterest, and many others. Industry players also held regular meetings without the government. One of the most common forms of regular meeting of the multi-agency foreign influence task force, the FITF, attended by spates of executives, FBI personnel, and nearly always one or two attendees marked OGA. So, you know, I'm going to get, we're going to link to this in the description. We'll also link to a summary of all of these. But the the overall point of this, and, and just to summarize, because we don't want to go too long, but the overall point of this is you have all these government agencies who are trying to prevent, first of all, they're trying to prevent Donald Trump from carrying out the policies that he promised to in 2016, because what he promised to do, which was retrenchment, foreign retrenchment, goes against what the deep state wants. The deep state wants the United States to basically carry out perpetual foreign wars on other countries that do not align their governments and their policies with what the United States wants, what the U.S. government, that is what the deep state wants them to do. Whether it's complying with, um, I don't know, like austerity policies that the WEF wants them to do, whether it's um, paying back their loans to American corporations, to American banks like the, the deep state wants them to do. Whatever it is, the deep state wants other countries to be able to be reined in by the, by the State Department, by, um, by our foreign policy apparatus. Donald Trump was explicitly America first, which goes against everything that all these alphabet agencies want for our foreign policy. So in order to keep him from carrying out his stated agenda, his stated foreign policy agenda, they had to prevent him from carrying out his agenda. And what better way to do that than to tie him up for two years in this Russia collusion hoax? And eventually, ultimately, it was to keep him from winning re-election so they can actually take back over the White House. And the when you look at the the Hunter Biden scandal, that's actually what everything culminated in. That was the culmination of their of their hard work in working with these social media companies was to make sure that any kind of negative news that came out against their preferred politicians would get censored. And if they can't control social media, they can't control because if you remember, social media was the way that Americans were able to bypass the mainstream press. Yes. If you go back to the 80s and 90s, the FBI and the CIA wouldn't have had any reason to do anything like this with the media because, I mean, the newspapers, you just had a handful of newspapers that everybody read. You had the three major news networks that everyone watched, you know, the one hour of news in the evening. The 24-7 news cycle kind of threw a monkey wrench in it because especially with Fox News. They weren't really able to control the narrative on Fox News as much as they could newspapers and the evening news, but it was still fairly manageable. And at least, you know, Fox News, they did kind of uh, toe the bush line. But with social media, it's completely different because the average person, and we talked about this last week, how with social media, you have people like Matt Gates who can buck not just the Republican Party, but the so-called Fox News alternative, the Fox News conservatives, because they have social media. They have Gab, they have Twitter, they have Parlay, they have all these other different social media platforms that they can use to gain supporters and gain donations. So they have their built-in support of conservatives. This is something that – this was a problem for the deep state because this is how Donald Trump was able – Donald Trump would not have been elected president without social media. It was because of social media he was able to bypass the mainstream press, and for this reason, the deep state had to get their talons into Twitter. They had to get their talons into Facebook. And of course, remember, as you said, yeah, social media is how he bypassed the mainstream media. And what was the flagship of President Trump's social media approach? It was his Twitter Twitter account. It It wasn't mean YouTube videos. It wasn't mean Facebook posts. The meme is mean 
tweets because they knew that was his biggest megaphone by far. So in part 11, this is really, I mean, a lot of the, some of them are repetition. Some of these parts are uh, repetitious, but part 11 from Matt Taibbi is really the whole crux of the issue. And this one's entitled how Twitter let the intelligence community in because most conservatives, they, they view Twitter and Facebook and Google and all these corporations as the villains. Corporations are capitalist companies. A capitalist company has to respond at a certain point to supply and demand. And there's obviously not demand, enough demand in America for this level of censorship. I mean, it's not like 80% of the country is democratic. If you logged on Twitter nine months ago and that was all you knew, you would think that 80 to 90% of Americans were Democrats. And then you had about a 15 to 10% fringe minority of Republicans who were a bunch of kooks. But that's not the case. So how is it that social media companies were able to portray this image, this, this consolidated image? And it's, you know, if you logged on to Twitter, let's say, for instance, you're not really interested in racial justice. Like, that's just not your thing. Like, you don't really care about black power. If you logged on two years ago at this point in 2021, that's all you would see. Yeah. You'd see black voices amplified, all this stuff about racial justice, and you wouldn't even have to – it's not like that was in your search history, and that was what they were recommending to you based on your search history. It's that's what they were promoting. So the reason why they were able to push this agenda on the American people against their users' consent is because they had the backing of the intelligence community. They were basically being run like pawns of the intelligence community. Jack Dorsey was not in control of Twitter. Even Vijaya Gad, even with whatever anti-American, anti-white – sentiments that she has. She was not in control of Twitter. Yoel Roth, he was not in control of Twitter. At the at the end of the day, these people were being led around on a noose, or not a noose. At the end of the day, these people were being led around on a leash by the intelligence community. So in part 11, Matt Taibbi asked, how did Twitter let the intelligence community in? In August 2017, when Facebook decided to suspend 300 accounts with quote-unquote suspected Russian origin, remember this is at the height of the Russia collusion investigation, this is when 90% of Democrats believed that the only reason Trump was elected is because of Russian help, Twitter wasn't that worried. Its leaders were sure that they didn't have a Russia problem. Quote-unquote, we did not see a big correlation, no large patterns. Facebook may take action on hundreds of accounts, and we may take action on 25. Now, one of the ways that they felt that this was going to work in their advantage is they figured the media will keep the focus on Facebook, Facebook will lose users, and Twitter will gain market share. They said the um, vice, uh, um, vice President Colin Crowell, who was the pol public policy VP, he said, quote, Twitter is not the focus of inquiry into Russian election meddling right now. The spotlight is on Facebook. In September 2017, after a cursory review, Twitter informed the Senate that it suspended 22 possible Russian accounts and 179 others with possible links to those accounts amid a larger set of roughly 2,700 uh, 2, suspects manually examined. So out of 2,700, they only found 22 that were possible Russian accounts. Receiving these meager results, a furious Senator Mark Warner of Virginia, who is the most deep state Democrat imaginable. Like anything, <laughs> any Democrat coming out of Northern Virginia is going to be the most. They're they're, they're going to be up to their neck in deep state dollars. Like that's one hundred percent of their donors. Mark he Warner, was the ranking Democrat. Tim Kaine is another one, another real winner. Yeah, Tim Kaine, Mark Warner. They they're the absolute worst of the worst when it comes to just to deep state involvement. He was the ranking Democrat on the intelligence community. He held an immediate press conference to denounce Twitter's report as quote unquote frankly inadequate on every level. 
Now, what information did Mark Warner have that Twitter was hiding these results? What motive did Twitter have to hide these results? Were they being funded by Russians? Mark Warner didn't elaborate. He just said that this is inadequate. Like you, you mean to say that you looked at 2,700 suspects and you only suspended 22? After meeting with congressional leaders, Crowell wrote, Warner has political incentive to keep this issue at top of the news, maintain pressure on us and the rest of industry to keep producing material for them. Crowell added Democrats were taking cues from Hillary Clinton, who that week had said, quote, it's time for Twitter to stop dragging its heels and live up to the fact that its platform is being used as a tool for cyber warfare. In growing anxiety over its PR problems, Twitter formed a Russia task force to proactively self-investigate. The Russia task force started mainly with data shared from counterparts at Facebook centered around accounts supposedly tied to Russia's Internet Research Agency. That was the agency I couldn't remember earlier, Internet Research Agency. That they're laying all the blame for uh, Trump's victory in 2016. On October 13, 2017, quote, no evidence of a coordinated approach. All of the accounts found seem to be lone wolf type activity. October 18, 2017, quote, first round of Russian investigation, 15 high-risk accounts, three of which have connections with Russia, although two are Russia today. October 23, 2017, quote, finished with investigation, 2,500 full manual account reviews. We think this is exhaustive. 32 suspicious accounts and only 17 of those are connected with Russia. Only two of those have significant spend, one of which is Russia today. The failure of the Russia task force to produce material worsened the company's PR crisis because keep in mind, Democrats and their media acolytes are keeping Russia at the forefront of everyone's minds. Every Democrat in the country, all they're thinking about is Russia, Russia, Russia. We wouldn't have to put up with this Trump nightmare if it wasn't for Russia. And then they hear that Twitter is not complying with the Senate Senate Intelligence Committee. They find out that Twitter is not complying in deactivating Russia bots. Then all the Democrats, which is half the country, their ire turns against Twitter. Imagine being in that position where you're asked to basically prop up a literal lie for which you can find no evidence. Yes. Yes, correct. That's the exact position they were in. Goodness. Johns Hopkins Hopkins professor and Intel Committee quote-unquote expert Thomas Ridd told Politico, quote, were Twitter a contractor for the FSB, they could not have built a more effective disinformation platform. So as Congress threatened costly uh, costly legislation to uh, to regulate Twitter, so the, the Democrats they're actually doing what their base wants. Uh, you know, hint hint, Republicans they're actually doing what their base wants. Like there's a company that's not doing what they want, so they're telling that company, well, if you don't do a, what what we want, we're just going to pass legislation that's going to cost you millions of dollars. So as they threatened costly uh, costly legislation. And Twitter was being subject to more and more bad press fueled by the committees. The company changed its tune about the smallness of its Russia problem. In Washington, weeks after the first briefing, Twitter leaders were told by Senate staff that Senator Warner feels like tech industry was in denial for months. One Twitter, one Intel staffer said that there was big interest in the Politico article about the deleted accounts. Twitter pledged to work with them on their desire to legislate. So this is what companies do when they're being threatened with regulation. They will promise to work with the legislators and the regulators to come into compliance in order to avoid costly regulations being added. This is why Facebook was running ads saying that they wanted to be regulated. You remember those ads that Facebook was putting up saying that they support additional regulation on big tech? Yeah, sure you do. You, you're trying to get in bed with the regulators so you can uh, get by with as much as possible with uh, at as low as a cost as low a cost as possible. Then this whole issue was meant to uh, produce scare headlines that would scare Twitter into compliance. So Twitter soon settled on its future posture. In public, it removed content at the at, at its sole discretion. In other words, even if content didn't violate its terms of service, 
Privately, they would offboard anything identified by the U.S. intelligence community as state-sponsored as a state-sponsored entity conducting cyber operations. Twitter let the U.S. intelligence committee into its moderation process, and it would eventually stay with Twitter until Musk took over. In fact, in an email to company leaders, uh, Crowell wrote, "Quote: We will not be reverting to the status quo." So after the this is the fall of 2017, as Democrats are putting pressure on Twitter, Crowell, who is the vice president, uh, who is one of the VPs at Twitter, he tells the staff that we will not be reverting to the status quo. In other words, the intelligence community is here and they're here to stay, and we are going to be at their beck and call. And uh, this is uh, this is this would be the story until Musk took over. Taibbi said that Twitter would be uh, would refer to the FBI as the belly button of the intelligence community. So, in other words, Twitter would work directly with the FBI because that was who they had the closest relationship with. But the FBI would then work with the other intelligence agencies to make sure that Twitter was complying, and eventually just spiraled out of, out of control. As uh, I mentioned earlier, it started out small, and eventually, even state government officials were sending emails to Twitter, presuming that they had the authority to get Twitter to censor content. Every single agency, every single government, all the way down to the state level, they were demanding that Twitter censor content, so much so that Twitter was overworked that they had to accept $3.4 million on uh, the part of the FBI in order to support additional staff to handle all of these requests. And I mean, again, the pinnacle is Adam Schiff sending an email asking that a journalist be censored because the journalist was writing a negative article about him. So this is this is how it all started. The the Twitter became the Twitter that we knew and hated all because of the Russia collusion hoax and the Russia collusion hoax happened because Democrats lost an election. And this is what happens when one party gains control of the intelligence apparatus of the of the deep state. When we refer to the deep state, obviously we're not going to get rid of the FBI. This is one of the things that all libertarians are claiming. Oh, well if if Republicans would listen to us, they we wouldn't even have an FBI. We wouldn't even have a CIA. These Alphabet agencies aren't going to go anywhere. These are these are billions of dollars that are being paid to hundreds of thousands of employees and hundreds of thousands of additional contractors. That's not going away. Rather than trying to get rid of the FBI, the CIA, and all these other alphabet agencies, all you have to do is win elections and actually govern with an iron fist. See, I don't think that Trump came into the government expecting any of this. I think he genuinely no. was naive enough to believe that the FBI is full of patriots who just want to do the right thing and want to lock up child molesters and want to lock up yeah. bank robbers. Like they don't even Jeff Sessions. I like remember Jeff Sessions. Oh. He would he, uh, publicly he would tell people that uh, I have no I have the utmost confidence in the FBI. We have the most talented men and women of any law enforcement agency in the country. However, privately, this came out that privately. He actually refused to talk about anything of significance in his office because he was confident that the intelligence community had his office wiretapped. So oh this, my. Is, this is the idea. And, and like he's still – and to know that Jeff Sessions still didn't do jack to stop what the FBI was doing, that him choosing to recuse himself single-handedly led to the whole Russian investigation, the Robert Mueller stuff. Like, wow, what – I already lost any respect for him, but that just makes it even worse knowing that information, that he knew what the problem well, you was. you kind of – yeah, exactly. Well, you kind of have two different types of conservatives. One are people like Donald Trump who come from the business community who don't know how government works. Others are like Jeff Sessions who come from the political world who do know how the business of government works, and they're scared to death of the intelligence community. I don't remember who it was, but uh, if you remember, somebody said that – told Trump that if you cross the intelligence community, you're going to be in trouble because they're all going to come after you. 
Well, I think Trump thought, well, I'm president, you know, I'll, I'll come after them. But th- here's the thing, like we have a government, we have a permanent government in the intelligence community, in the deep state. This government stays the same. It's the same people, no matter who yep. wins an election. And their attitude whenever a Donald Trump gets elected is, okay, he'll be here eight years. I've been here 10. I'm going to be here 10 after he leaves. It's that, it's that kind of attitude. It's like they see themselves as the permanent government, the permanent state. It's like that Ukrainian uh, colonel. Alexander Sasha Vindman. Don't call me Mr. Vindman. Yeah. He hates being called yeah. Mr. Vindman. He said he, he yeah. subverted the Trump administration and basically, you know, basically committed treason. That's what he did because he believed he was, quote, protecting the interagency consensus, end quote. Yes, the interagency consensus, and he believed that Trump was messing up their foreign – he even told the committee that he believed that Trump was messing up their foreign policy and that Trump's election was a threat to their foreign policy. Now, to us, that's just ridiculous. It's like what in the world – and even uh, Mark Milley. Mark Milley oh. was sharing information with his Russian counterpart that he did not let Trump know about. He was sharing information with his Chinese counterpart that he didn't let Trump in on. He was basically running the military behind Trump's back, committing treason. That like, man treason against the elected commander in chief. He so literally shows- committed treason. He admitted that he told China, hey, if I have any reason to believe that President Trump is going to declare war on you guys or attack you, I'll let you know ahead of time. That's mm-hmm. literal treason. Put that man in front of a firing squad. That's what he deserves. But see, the thing is, the American. This shows how little power that the American people have over their corporations, over their even over their government. They elect a president, and the president's hands are tied because he doesn't. The president doesn't control the the government. It's the interagency consensus of all these alphabet agencies. They are the ones who dictate the policies of the government. And if you really want to overturn the uh, Trump campaign on running against the deep state, but I think he thought that the deep state was just simply going to submit once he became elected. He didn't realize right. how to the extent to which they were going to fight back. And, you know, you can't, the average person, they would complain about Twitter. They complain about Facebook. There was, there was really nothing that they could do about these companies unless a billionaire buys them. But there is something that the average person can do about these agencies. They can elect a president. They can elect senators. They can elect congressmen who will actually drag these people out of their offices in front of committees and make them answer for the collusion that they're committing against the American people. For the This is basically treason against the American people, against the voters. And this is the thing with democracy. When you have a democracy, someone could get elected – who will actually change the foreign policy consensus, who will actually change our allies. Like this is the thing. Like there's certain countries that these deep state actors expect us to be allied with. We could elect a president that decides to change that tomorrow. They would fight like hell to make sure that that didn't happen. And this was just to give one a quick example, because we are running kind of over with this episode. We're going to link to all of this. Uh, again, we're going to link to all of the episodes in the description as well as a summary. But just to give one example, there was the Syria policy. The American deep state wanted the United States to remain in Syria as long as we remained in Iraq, preferably longer. And they wanted us to help overthrow Assad. This was one of the big things during the 2016 election. It was kind of understood if Hillary Clinton became president that we would give Assad, Bashar al-Assad, the Syrian president, we would give him the Saddam Hussein treatment or the Muammar Gaddafi treatment. So that was what the deep state wanted. They wanted us to go in there and build a democracy in Syria based on their liberal principles. And when Trump decided to completely pull out of Syria, then that's just – it's like, no, you're not allowed to do that. Like we've invested hundreds of millions of dollars into this, so you're just not allowed to walk away from this. So 
that that's an example of why you're seeing such revulsion and such cooperation between the FBI and Twitter to make sure that voices that would support an America first policy or an America first president get silenced and voices that would support an internationalist policy and an activist American president would get amplified. And so if you want to change the social media censorship, you have to completely have you have to have complete transparency with all the alphabet agencies to make sure that they're not interfering with social media. Thankfully, we don't have this problem anymore with Twitter, at least not on the – I'm sure there's still – I mean, you know, there's still employees at Twitter that have uh, the emails of FBI agents, and they're still corresponding and complaining about Musk policies. They're probably start, still doing stuff behind Musk's back, but not to the extent that it happened under Jack Dorsey. Yeah, and if I may, Jacob, I think my final analysis to take away from this is, as you mentioned, the deep state, the bureaucracy, the permanent government, if you will, they obviously made it clear they do not fear the office of the president. They don't fear whether it's Donald Trump or whoever gets elected president. They don't fear that one person because, like you said, yeah, this person will be here for four to eight years and then they're gone and we're here for decades on. What they and they you mentioned they said they saw Trump's election as a threat to their power. Well, you got to take into consideration that doesn't just mean Donald J. Trump, the man. What does that mean when they fear his election? They fear the 73 million voters who ultimately voted for him for president, 62 million in 2016 and then 73, about 74 million in 2020. They fear the half of the country that voted for him, that put him in office, that elected him twice. Those are the people they truly fear. Those those I think at the end of the day, as cliche as it sounds, those are the people. That's the one thing that could actually be a real threat to the deep state's power. No, unfortunately, no. The one man, the president, just does not have the authority, at least not right now, to really take out the deep state as he should. But as we saw on January 6th, right? January 6th, 2021, for just a couple of hours, a couple thousand American patriots entered the cap and they made the establishment, the political elite, the deep state, lose their minds. Members of Congress ran, they cowered under their desks, they ran with bags over their heads to try to cover up who they were. They were terrified. The deep state had no idea how to handle it. So we saw just a glimpse of what could be done to take out the deep state for good. And that is what they really fear. And that is why they hope that at the end of the day, the majority of the American people will remain apathetic will remain completely oblivious to this stuff because like you said jacob not everyone's on twitter not everyone is reading through every single twitter file not everyone is paying attention imagine if just half the country imagine if just 100 and about 55 million people give or take 160 million people in this country were aware of what is going on right now that would not be a good day for the deep state that would not be a good day for Christopher Ray, the head of the FBI, Merrick Garland, the attorney general, that would not be a good day for literal traitors like Mark Millian, Alexander, Mr. Alexander Vindman. That would be a very bad day for all of them. We know what the result of that ultimately would be. It would be a very American result. Uh, I'll, I'll leave it at that. So the most we can do is make people aware of this stuff, raise awareness, bring this to the attention of as many people as possible. And maybe then, God willing, maybe then something can finally be done. Some major change, some, I guess you could almost say some revolutionary change might come about as a result of that. 
Unfortunately, that is all the time we have left for this special episode of The Right Take, episode number two of the Long Take series. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. As always, be sure to follow us for all of our latest content at our website, righttakepodcast.com. The full list of social media websites and podcast platforms where we are available, righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe. And as always, if ever you guys are feeling oh so generous and want to continue supporting us and what we do here on the show, righttakepodcast.com slash support. We'll talk to you next week, guys.